There's a story um, from the time of the Buddha, which is about a, a leper that is an outcast. He's a someone that lives on the margins of society, and um, an abandoned person with very little resources. And he's sort of wandering around, and he comes across a gathering, which is a gathering of disciples that have come to listen to the Buddha, as the story goes. So this guy is uh, attracted because he thinks there might be some food on offer. And he's um, thinks, well, if I sort of get mingled up with this crowd, then I might, be, might get a free meal. So then, meanwhile, the Buddha is sitting there as people are gathering, and with his divine eye, he scans the disciples and scans the assembly to see if there's anyone um, that could, you know, receive or, you know, what to teach and who could receive his message. And as he's sort of looking and getting a sense of who's there and where they're at and where they're coming from and what their potentiality is at, at that moment, he he sees the guy, actually the leper's called Super Buddha. I don't know why they call him that, but anyway, it's a great name. <laughs> he sees Super Buddha the leper and he realizes it's actually this one, this guy that's going to have the potential to to hear what he wants to communicate that evening. So he starts his teaching, and there's always this way, particularly um, as it's as uh, traditionally is taught, the the Dharma, of a it's, it's uh, the encouragement and to follow um, the style of the Buddha is to teach step by step. It's one of the encouragements, bit by bit, um, in a way that can be manageable. So he begins his Dharma talk and uh, starts with talking about the the value and the power of generosity, dana, as something to cultivate in one's life, and sila, ethics and virtue. And then he goes on to talk about the ways leading to heaven, as it's talked about in the suttas, meaning to a happy place cultivating wholesome action and intentionality and so on gives rise to to a more auspicious kind of way of being. And then from there on, he talks about the drawbacks of sensuality, just seeking, spending your life seeking sensual pleasure, and then the rewards and the benefits of renunciation. And then after having laid that groundwork, he sees that uh, Super Buddha's mind is, as it said in the suttas, is free from hindrances at that time, is elevated, is clear, is malleable, and therefore able to receive the teaching peculiar to the Buddhas. That's how it's phrased or translated in English, a teaching that is peculiar to the Buddha and to the Buddhas. This is the teaching of, that brings about awakening it's the core teaching, and then from there on, he goes out to teach his four truths, four noble truths. So tonight I'd like to reflect on this teaching as our minds are malleable, 
maybe momentarily free from hindrances, <laughs> elevated. <laughs> um, however our minds are, it's okay. <laughs> because we're talking really about a very human experience. Um, so the Buddha starts his teaching from the experience of suffering. Um, so these four truths that he formulated didn't really arise immediately. He he uh, considered how best to communicate his insight because his actual insight, his liberating insight, was was quite subtle. It was very subtle and very hard to communicate. You know, it said on the as Kisara was saying the other day that he has the classical archetypal story of the life of the Buddha, uh, which if we see it in that way, it has it mean that means it has meaning for us. You know, people get very into what exactly was the Buddha's life, was there even a Buddha and so on? Um, who was he? How did he live? But I, I like to, and that's one sort of way to think about it all, but I also like to think about it as a very archetypal story in that it has archetypal truths transcend time and space and history uh, because they have meaning for us in, 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 at any time, meaning for us in our human lives. They reflect journeys that we take. And so the Buddha, Buddha's life, as it's classically told, is a sort of perfect myth, really, or archetypal um, template. I don't say a myth, but a template for our journey. And, and the journey that he has before he sets out seeking away his quest is very similar to ours. He, he searches, you know, he lives distracted by realms of pleasure, seeking escape um, in that way, and experiences a lot of pleasant experiences and a lot of you know, wealth and comfort and so on. And, and in some ways I like to see that as a metaphor for, for the times that we have now, that you know it's not a perfect situation, but we do live in times, and for many of us there's been a lot of and for us contemporary societies, there's a lot of accessibility to comforts and to just being able to distract ourselves and absorb ourselves in pleasures and to change set if we don't like where we are, if we don't like the place we can go to another, as he did, to another palace. It's too cold here, you can jet off somewhere warm. <laughs> and so we have this way of moving around to change our circumstance it, to continue to maintain um, a sense of you know, our, our well-being, but it's quite fragile doing that. And he saw ultimately the fragility of keep trying to shore up a sense of himself through that process of, of constantly trying to absorb into pleasure. So then he went to practice, as we heard the other night, and as we know, as a, as a yogi, and took the path of pain and felt that there was something wrong with his, his body and his embodiment, that that was holding him back, that he had to crush this realm of form, what he felt, what the body's needs were, food even, even the breath even got down to him feeling that the breath was a bit coarse and a bit of an indulgence. 
So he tried to stop. He stopped eating for a while, and then, I mean, it sounds funny, but <laughs> it's not so far removed from 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 where we can go. And particularly sometimes when we get into this sort of spiritual path, because we're trying to crush the body in many different ways to remove ourselves from our embodied experience, to disassociate from it, to not feel it. And so it said that he tried to breathe very little or hold his breath and and took himself really to the point of death. And at that point, as Kilisara said the other night, Sujata's woman was watching him and thinking, well, he's keen, but he looks like he's in trouble. (laughs) Better make him some food. And he took the food and because he realized, he realized he had the insight that this way that he was going along was completely useless. It was completely fruitless. It wasn't going to deliver what he was looking for. It was just torturing his body. So he gave that up and then he, he lost the support of his fellow ascetics. And they, they felt, as was saying this morning, that he was a slacker. And, you know, he accepted food and from a woman. And so he was, he was abandoned. It was a moment of complete and utter abandonment and all the pathways he had known had dried up. And that's a really good place to be, actually. You know, all the different ways that we have tried to negotiate our life. Sometimes we get to a place where we realize it's not working and we have to just stop and open and maybe listen to something else. And it's a place like the sort of place we get to when we come on retreat. It's a a sort of withdrawing from our strategies and learning to open and listen beneath the usual ways we go about things. And it sort of has great meaning for us also, you know, on a more collective level, having tried the path of pleasure and violence and destruction, that we have to find another way. There has to be another way. So the Buddha thought, might there be another way uh, from this endless seeking of distraction and pleasure or the path of pain and, and oppression? So at that point, he, he you know, as we know, as the story goes, he took himself to... Um, what, what is now called Budgaya, to the Bodhi tree, and sat under this tree. It's, you know, just sat there and vowed, I'm going to actually try and crack this nut, <laughs> to sit here. And um, he, but he was helped by this memory that he had of when he was a child, the memory of being with the breath and very, in a very sort of middle way, approach, not trying to go into subtle absorptions, not trying to control and crush and dominate the body, but just simply being with the breath and then entering these deep, calm states and from there having enough clarity to really see and to look into what is actually happening here, what, is, what do I need to understand here, investigating. And through that night it said that three knowledges arose, called the the three knowledges, liberating knowledges, the night of enlightenment as it's traditionally recorded. The first 
knowledge of seeing his many, many lives, realizing that this is an old story. He hadn't just, it wasn't just this life, but he had lived through many different forms, in many situations, in many circumstances, in different kinds of cultures, at different kinds of foods. And you know, this, this had been going on for a long, long time. This story of the self, of him appearing and disappearing. So that's the first knowledge, called the first knowledge. It's called the, you know, long have I wandered. That's what he, he said you know, to his disciples, not knowing these four truths. Through not knowing these four truths, long do we wander through these realms of samsara trying to find a home. So he saw that, and then he saw the second knowledge, he saw that not only he was experienced appearing and disappearing in so many forms, never finding a home, but being driven by these, these sort of unconscious and thirsting energies of desire and um, fear and uh, longing and so on, that, that all beings propelled by the, this force, this word karma, propelled by intentionality, by the propensity of the mind, by, by the, 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 the resonances of what has been done. There's a sort of momentum tool of that being propelled, the attractions and the aversions into one form after another, one situation after another. Now, now for some, and particularly in our secular age, that kind of story doesn't maybe... I don't particularly have a, a problem at all with that, actually. But if you don't really feel that that uh, lands for you, then you can think of it as um, as uh, as many, the many different, even in this life, the many different stories. This is another way sometimes it's talked about. How many different stories have you been through? How many different situations and circumstances and propelling us underneath um, the journeys that we make is this, this quality of, of seeking for somewhere to land often, some place of security, some place of, of home, and, and that eluding us. You know, it arises, but then we, we come across again this instability and change and impermanence and, and can't ever quite hold it together because the impact of the reality of the insubstantiality of it all. And so he started to really look into what is this? Is there, and this was his main quest, is there, is there a, something not touched by the mortal realm? Is there anything beyond that, transcendent of that? And so in the third knowledge it said that he actually realized what's called that which is not conditioned, that which isn't formed, brought into form, that which isn't constructed, that which is unborn, formless, or sometimes called the amata dhamma, that which is deathless, changeless. That he realized this dimension of reality, he realized this reality and he called it nibbana. And this third knowledge, and when he 
talked about this realization, he talked about it as the house of self being deconstructed, the deconstruction, the ridge poles broken, the rafters falling down, the roof collapsing. And that the that which builds the house would build that no more. That which continually the cause for this building of the house of self. And in in the teachings it talks about this sankara making, that which brings together the patterning where we the self is shaped. And what leads to that is this this movement of 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 the mind, this this ancient profound movement called avijja, which literally means not to see clearly, or sometimes translated as ignorance, not understanding the nature of reality, that nothing is actually has permanence. There are no permanent constructs. There is the tendency of vichyapachya sankara, there's this tendency of the mind, or another way of looking at it, the fundamental formless nature of mind, not really knowing its own nature, as formless, constantly seeks a place to land within structure, within conditioning, within forms, within construct. Thoughts, perceptions, feelings, memories. And we say, this is me. And so that very movement generates this samsaric experience, this wandering, this this not being satiated. So in his night of awakening, it said that not only did he have a, a glimpse of that deconstructing, the release out of the house of self, but it was irreversible. It completely collapsed. And it was in that moment he talked about being in bliss. It was a very, very blissful, very the freedom, the liberating insight. It's called the liberating insight at the heart of the Buddha's teaching. And this bliss um, went on for quite a while. Six weeks, as the story goes, he, he just sort of enjoyed that, enjoyed the taste of liberation, and spent one of those weeks just staring. I, I, I love this particular piece of the story where he just gazed at the tree that had protected him, the Bodhi tree, with great devotion. It says, with eyes unblinking. I'm sure he must have blinked. <laughs> but it's a poetic kind of sense of this utterance of devotion and connection with the natural world, which, which is a theme that runs throughout the whole of his life, actually. And, and it's, it's like, what, what can witness this what witnessed his awakening wasn't another human being, but it was the earth. You know, the earth, he called on the earth at that moment to bear witness, touching the earth. Because it was the earth, after all, that had witnessed all his many lives, all the many forms, all the many stories, and it was the earth into which he'd, from which he'd arisen and to which he would, his body would pass back again. So he called on the the... the protector of the Mother Earth to bear witness and, and an expression of that through the tree, his sense of great pleasure and connection.
But then how do you, how to express this insight? This was, this was what he pondered. And, and he actually thought, you know, this world is just caught in darkness. It's caught in ignorance. It's overwhelmed by suffering. There's no one that will really understand what I've seen and what I've understood. It's too subtle. And therefore, um, I won't try. <laughs> and at that point... The, the David realm, the angelic kingdom, who'd sort of been cheering him on, this great god, Brahma Sahampati, heard this, and everyone was freaking out. And it's like, well, this guy's just cracked the nut, you know, he's just like, this is a big deal, and he's just thinking of giving up and sort of wandering off and hanging out in bliss. You know, he's got to go and take that message out, he's got to communicate. And so at that point, Brahma Sahampati takes form. He's a sort of formless. Someone was mentioning about God in Buddhism. In the, in the traditional cosmology, there's lots of realms and gods and <laughs> devas and angels and all sorts of stuff going on. It's all very amazing. Anyway, this one from the Brahma realm, the, the, the realms of bringing into form, which seems very um, metaphorical, really, in terms of the Buddha having to bring into form his insight and for each of us to bring into form what we understand. It's the journey, it's not the journey, it's, you know, in Zen they say the journey doesn't really end with awakening, it sort of begins, in a, you know, it's, a, it's, it's ongoing in a certain way, but Brahma Sahampati comes down and and it's to, to this day in the, in the um, Theravada school, um, there's still this chant. In fact, the request for a Dharma talk appeals on behalf of Brahma Sahampati and invokes his name, please turn the wheel of the Dharma. So to this day, Brahma Sahampati is still remembered as that uh, force in the universe that appeals. It's a force of compassion. Please, out of compassion, for those with a little dust in their eyes, please go forth. Please try, even though it's very difficult, to turn the wheel of the Dharma. And it is difficult, and it was difficult for him, and, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. So, you know, his first teaching, someone came by and said, you know, you look very radiant, who are you? And he said, I'm the all-enlightened Tathagata, and... Um, you know, I've, and the person said, who's your teacher? I haven't got any teacher. I'm self-realized. And the guy goes, that's nice for you, and walks off. Because, you know, it's like, what are you going to do with that? You know, I'm fully enlightened, so there. <laughs> so it said that, you know, the Buddha, I guess, thought, well, maybe that wasn't, you know, maybe I can think of another way of communicating this whole thing. <laughs> So he, he walked from Gaia to Benares, Varanasi, which is a long walk, and I guess he had time to think about it. And, you know, this is the story as he arrived, as Kirisara was saying this morning, and the, the, um, his fellow ascetics that he'd practiced with saw him coming and said, oh, here's that slacker. But they were very moved by his radiance, his brilliance. They set up a seat and he sat down and then he, he said, listen, have you ever heard me talk like this? As he started to talk about this very core teaching, which is really at the heart of Buddhist practice, which is the reflection 
on the four noble truths, four Ariyasatcha, the noble truths. And, you know, this, um, this he began with, rather than the, the, there's enlightenment and sort of leap to that, he began with there is this experience of dukkha, which is often translated suffering. There's this experience of dukkha, and then second truth, dukkha has a cause. Third truth, there is the ending of that dukkha, and the fourth truth, there is a path to bring about the realization of that ending. And each of these four truths has a practice uh, that in response to them that we can actually do. And so therefore it gives us a way into this most subtle insight. Otherwise, sometimes when we hear about awakening, enlightenment and so on, it becomes a sort of idealization then rather than a way, a reflection to help us practice and keep curious and inquiring. And so this way in starts with an experience we have every day, which is the, the experience of dukkha. There is dukkha. There is dukkha is, you know, means that which is hard to bear, that which is unsatisfactory, that which is difficult, um, that which is suffering, that which is sort of at its subtlest meaning, a sort of separative, a sense of separativeness, uh, do apart from Akash, that which is perfect. This feeling of, of being apart from a sort of most existential and subtle level, there is this, 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 this um, pain, really that we treat, keep trying to resolve in one way or another because this fundamental sense of being dislocated um, from the whole, from the perfect. And then other kinds of dukkha, it's called, there's a sort of dukkha called dukkha dukkha, <laughs> which, is, which, is, which is important to differentiate because it, it's, it's pain, it's... it's the pain, the sort of pains that we can't alleviate in, through this practice, actually, like the pain of an aging body, the pain of sickness, the pain of, of what is felt sometimes, the pain of loss at the death of a loved one. We're going to feel these things, and sometimes it can sound like, you know, if you're practicing, you shouldn't feel these things, or you're going wrong, but we, we're going to feel these things, or dukkha viparinama, which means the the suffering of, of the subtle sense of, of impermanence, you know, that things changing, the loss of the pleasant. But the dukkha sankara, which is a particular dukkha that's generated from the ignorance of the mind, is what can be alleviated and overcome through this practice, wise investigation. So, you know, we can feel pain, as we were talking about the dart the other day, and, but it's the dukkha then that we add on top of what, it, what actually is. You know, it's just like this. And then there's this sort of agitation around what is that generates the stress. So 
so the so the contemplation of dukkha can be very it's all quite a wide range from these very this shared experience birth aging sickness death being with the unloved being parted from the separated from the loved not getting what you want getting what you don't want this is called the the eight fo- the eight types of dukkha that are that are very integral to to our lives and then the the dukkha of this in the most subtle sense this dukkha of the mind not understanding its own nature formless nature seeking form so the the focuses that which we're the grasping the the identifying mind looking at the the shimmering nature of feeling, thought, perception, memory, and there's a sort of a shaping around that. This is me, this is the self, this is the building the house of self. That process is dukkha, which you know, we've been contemplating or seeing, beginning to get glimpses of in our meditation. And then this dukkha being generated you know, being generated moment by moment. So the first the first task is to turn, you know, to not to, because often when there's the experience, when we experience this, we feel we take it very personally, is something wrong with me? I remember one of my um, fellow monastics when I was training in the monasteries saying that when he was in Thailand, one of his teachers saying, if you're suffering, it's not because there's anything wrong with you. <laughs> And just like really was a, a great relief for him. He kept feeling it was because he was bad somehow. You know, and and we, we do that very unconsciously. Uh, there's something wrong or there's bad. Or, or so it gets projected onto the self, a bad self. It gets projected, we're talking about the mind projecting outwards. You know, the, that it's, to, it's because of what, others are doing to me and yes we can be hurt but what by what others are doing and what what happens to us but then this extra dukkha that we can actually feel that but we can stop suffering unnecessarily or perhaps we just really like us you know we become a martyr and no one suffers like me you know let me tell you about it <laughs> and how much of it i have and how long it's been going on and you know, so we can really get used to to dwelling in a sort of shape about you know the suffering me, and it's quite familiar, and we don't think maybe there's another way of being, perhaps isn't so dense and heavy. So there's all these different very powerful reactions that we have, distracting ourselves, repressing to this very human and fundamental experience. And that's why in the teaching it says, rather than I'm suffering, it just says there is this experience of dukkha. And it needs to be turned to, to be met, to be open to, to be contemplated, rather than avoided. And you notice on our retreat just how much it takes to contain us all and ourselves just for just to meet that reality you know it's quite it's quite hard um, to sit here and to to acknowledge there is dukkha 
and to keep withdrawing the mind's projections around it and reactions to it, to begin to, that same attention that we've been working with the breath, to be able to bring that mindful, investigative awareness to the experience of dukkha. There is dukkha, and to begin to notice in moments what's, in this second truth, what's actually generating, something generating this that we're actually doing, or the, the ignorance of the mind is doing. And once we can actually explore that, then we have the mechanisms for undoing that dynamic through the power of seeing it as it's operating. So what's the generating of this, these different forms in the second truth of tanha, which is thirsting or craving. I mentioned already the kama tanha, this desire to absorb into a sensory experience, that finding a home, wanting to find a place to land. It's the mind running out all the time. In the, in the retreat, it's very hard to find many places to absorb, you know, to, to distract. In, in our regular life, you know, we've got a billion dollar industry helping us do that. Uh, so, it's, so the mind's always running out, and as you notice, the, the, sometimes the more we absorb into distraction, the more subtly un, uh, unsatisfactory it all becomes. And so now we have a world where we can switch channels, get what we want, turn our attention away, and still, even more profoundly, we feel unsatisfied and hollow inside. Well, bhava dana, the second form, which is about this energy of need, you know, the sense of self needing to become more than it is. And, and, and all of these energies, they're not bad and they can be distilled and have very positive sides to them, which we'll explore as we go along. But in the raw energy of it is this feeling of keep, keep moving, keep going, keep getting something else that you haven't got yet. And you notice we get there, we get what we want, we achieve what we want to achieve, and then there's this feeling that it's still not enough. Obviously, when we look at you know, billionaires, and they still, it's still not enough. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, people that, you know, is what, what is enough for us? Somehow, you know, we, we, we have a difficulty as human beings to know what is enough. We can consume the whole planet and it's still not enough. So consuming, even the word consumer, being we're consumers now, we're not human beings anymore, we're just, you know, consumers let loose. So this energy in the, in the mindful contemplation, the insight where rather than following that blindly we just start to to contemplate it rather than believing it so much. Yes, if you want, you know, it's not to say we, we don't move, maybe I want to move, but it's very conscious, a very different relationship to consciously engaging that energy than just being driven by it and having choice. Maybe I don't want to be driven by that. 
And then when we've had enough, then this third kind of desire, which is called the desire not to exist. It's like, I, you know, I, I don't really want to be here anymore. <laughs> it's, uh, it's heavy, it's difficult. There's a with poet on her, and it's, it's, it's very profound, I think, for many of us. Uh, it, can, it can really feel like me, this very deep sense of resistance to our embodied experience, to the impact of life, to it feels heavy. So I just want to stay under the duvet, hide away. So these, these, these energies uh, propel us and, and they are under, you shape the self very profoundly and entwined with the self-structures energetically, cognitively, emotionally, psychologically. Or as Ajahn Chah would sometimes in his very simple way would say, you know, just contemplate the wanting and the not wanting of the mind. You know, I want this and I don't want that. Because it's sort of pretty much going on all the time. I don't like, and then basically saying, I don't like, I don't want it to be like it is. So this, the task or the practice in, in response to this whole territory, as we illuminate these energies, the encouragement is, or the teaching is, to let go, or to let be, to learn to abandon those energies. And it's, it's a, that's a whole territory because you say, well, if I let go, who will I be? <laughs> What's the point? You know, I'll just be a sort of an enlightened blob like a cucumber. Yeah, so cold and <laughs> no heat, no emotion, no desire, no passion. Yeah, it's just not going to be very pretty. Yeah. So the, and, and moving, you know, this, because actually... The, the, the leap, if you like, the leap from being shaped by knowing ourselves is always associated with that agitation to re- releasing from that is, is, is we're entering and we're opening into another territory. This is the territory of this third truth, the territory of the realization of the unconstructed, the unborn, the unoriginated the unconstructed mind. And the taste of that is peace, is home. And it's the most immediate and near to us, but we just haven't really recognized. So in the third noble truth, the encouragement is to realize what's fundamentally always here. Because we're so used to, to knowing ourselves through the thoughts, through the memories, through the getting there, through the struggle, through the reactivity, through the stories, through the belief systems that we have. And whether we're right, whether we're wrong, whether we're doing well, whether we're not, we don't know ourselves in any other way. So a moment of release out of those structures, the collapse of the house of self, or even a shuddering of it a little bit, 
in the recognition, the realization that there's a there's another dimension here can be very disconcerting actually. Even the process in some naming this in the in the small groups, that the letting go in in and of itself can be disconcerting because we might feel vulnerable. I don't know who I am. I might be hurt. I might not be defended enough. Or maybe fear. Or maybe disorientation. So there's a territory in this practice from the second to the third noble truth. There's openings. There's release. The non-grasping of the, of the mind. But there's also learning and recognizing and in a way it's like relaxing into something that's not yet familiar. So in this realization, in the territory of the third truth, niroda, nibbana, niroda, sometimes translated cessation, but if you break down the, the word, it means without walls. The mind has no walls. The deconstructing of the walls of the mind. The mind begins to taste its own nature without being constructed. There's awareness, there's presence. And these are just words because, of course, each word, Kisara was saying last night, quoting from one of the Mahayana texts, this Dharma cannot be named. Words fall silent before it. Ajahn Mahabua, one of the great Thai forest masters, said, when dukkha stops, nothing remains. All that remains is entirely pure awareness. It is the purity of the jitta, the mind-heart. If you want, you can call it nibbana. We know it by its peace. We know it by a sense of relief. We have a moments of, of that sense of relief, actually. We just don't recognize that. Sometimes things just drop away. That sense of the struggle drops away. And we're not often very tolerant to that space. Space is just an, an analogy to that non-constructed. So we sort of scramble you know, to do something about this. <laughs> so the practice there is a practice in the third noble territory of the third noble truth, and we'll explore some of. This, uh, as we go on tomorrow into the retreat, deepening into this territory, working with the truths. But to begin to have an acquired taste, at least for the non-grasping of the mind, at least for allowing some non-creation, 
you know, sometimes it's called the stilling of sankhara, of conditioning. Sometimes it's called peace. Sometimes it's called the taintless. These are all metaphors for nibbana. The other sure, the subtle, the unaging, stable, unmanifest, secure, wonderful, amazing, the refuge, the island, And when the Buddha talked, as he did in many different ways, about this realization, he also talked about it as the ending of greed, hatred, and delusion. So another way of entering that domain through the practice of bringing awareness, mindfulness to the body. So in the fourth noble truth, we start to enter the path, the activity of the path. This is the the activity that brings about this realization, brings about our ability to cultivate the capacity to meet the journey of the four noble truths, to enter into the experience of dukkha without all the reactivity around it for the sake of realizing the end of dukkha. So the replacement with the reactivity, and the getting lost in the suffering, the getting um, overwhelmed begins to be replaced with the cultivation of the factors of the path. Understanding, right intention, right action, speech, and so on, right mindfulness, and cultivation of samadhi and meditation, effort, these different factors of the path activity, but at the heart of that path activity is moments of investigation, moments of mindfully contemplating how is it now. Because how is it now, all of these four dimensions of these four truths are apparent, become apparent to us. Is there dukkha? And what is generating that? Don't want to have the mo- Don't want the moment like it is. Maybe want to, et- to for it to end. <laughs> want it another way. That agitation. Can we release even for a moment from that agitation, of wanting and not wanting? And softening, accepting, opening, mindfully present, recognizing that that which is listening, which is present, tasting a fundamental awareness of the heart. It's not going, it's not coming, it's not constructed. And that heart, the forms arise, form of the room, the 
Dharma talk, different beings, the light of the evening. It's this moment for a few more moments and it would dissolve and change and shift, but the awareness remains. So as the Buddha said, we mistake the real for the unreal and the thinking that the real, the unreal is, uh, it's not that it's not real, but these dreamlike processes that we go through. And we think that the unreal is the real. And, then, and that the real is unreal. It's that which illuminates, that which can know this moment, which seems unreal to us because it has no form. But without that, there wouldn't be this moment of knowing, recognition. So turning the mind back into its own awareness, not running out to make a shape and a structure of the, the house of the self again and again. But moments of just turning back very simply through mindfulness and presence of the body, the breath, the rising and passing, recognizing the ground of our awareness. Buddha said, just as one faring through a forest should see an ancient road traversed by people of former times with beautiful pools, groves, gardens, so have I seen an ancient path traversed by enlightened ones of old. Having fully come to know this path, I have established this way for the welfare of all. So we have the opportunity still, it's a time in our retreat to moments of our experience to contemplate in the framework of these four truths and to um, 
put in place the causes through applying this path activity to the breaking up of suffering, unnecessary suffering. And one thing that's recorded in the suttas, which is a bit extreme, but I think it's quite interesting, he said if someone would offer to hit you with spears for a hundred years or so and then say, I'm going to give you this teaching, take the offer. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that, that he said that because, because this teaching really gives a way to bring ourselves out of the self-created pain that we experience as human beings and which we project onto ourselves, onto each other and onto this planet and onto the world, destroying so much and generating so much unnecessary disturbance. And yet we have the capacity and the power within us to, to actually grow th- go mature out of those sort of very primitive almost reactivity to this experience of being embodied, being in life, and instead cultivate a way of awakening. So when someone was asking about, well, does this letting go just lead to a purposeless, meaningless way? In fact, the way of awakening is full of... um, beauty, as the full of potentiality, full of healing, full of possibility for a very different way of being here together on this earth, on this planet. And so this teaching has great um, importance for us at this time, because we are, in a way, living the Buddha's life. We've tried all the pathways and we've come to the place of might there be another way? (laughs) There must be another way. So if we can understand this teaching personally, we can begin to understand it collectively. To understand that there is another way, there's another dimension that we can awaken to. which resolves this sort of primary sense of homelessness and struggle. So may that be so for ourselves and for each other. May we share the blessings of our practice 
for the welfare of each of us here, our communities and families, and further afield, those around us, this land, across the great continents, this great earth, that all beings may be free from suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.